0: You are listening to primary care perspectives a podcast where pediatric experts from the children's hospital of philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients Dr. Katie Lockwood, a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm here today with Dr. Jeffrey Gerber, an assistant professor of pediatrics, attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases, and the medical director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And today we're going to be talking about the pneumonia pathway at CHOP. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Great, so let me start with some background. So CHOP has developed a new clinical pathway for the evaluation and treatment of a child with community-acquired pneumonia. This pathway is to be used for healthy children over 56 days old through 18 years of age with a suspected or proven community-acquired pneumonia managed in the outpatient, ER, inpatient, or ICU setting. Of course, today we'll be focusing on the outpatient setting primarily. Excluded from this pathway are children with cystic fibrosis, immunosuppression, tracheostomy, patients at risk for aspiration pneumonia, and hospital or institutional acquired pneumonias. So to start off, Dr. Gerber, why was a community-acquired pneumonia pathway needed?
1: Well, like most, most pathways, it's really important to standardize care. It's been shown, um, in many cases, to improve clinical outcomes and to um, actually save money. Um, community acquired pneumonia is one of the most common reasons for antibiotics in children. Um, there, there was a recent um, consensus guideline across many um, um, regulatory agencies or expert, um, expert um, guidance Um, committees and so we thought it was a good time to to develop a pathway based on this guidance great
0: and i've already had the opportunity to look at the pathway a few times and the pathway quickly differentiates that only a mild pneumonia should be treated as an outpatient so what are the criteria for making a mild assessment of a pneumonia
1: yeah it's an important first question so the things um that we consider things that the guideline considers are um, lack of hypoxia, and, and the, the number that we've given if, if um, oxygen level is tested is 90%. Um, generally, making sure the child is non-toxic appearing, which is, is, is a fairly you know, obvious first step. Um, and then looking for any type of work of breathing. So anybody who's grunting or retracting, um, or looks like they're really working to breathe, um, would not be uh, considered uh, mild and, and would be somebody that you would want to bring in the hospital, and then some, some of the practical issues like making sure that they can take medications by mouth um, and making sure that they have a good uh, follow-up plan. Great. So those that would, that would essentially put you in the category of, of an outpatient mild pneumonia.
0: Great. And we see lots of that, like you said, so that's helpful. Yeah. In the outpatient setting, the pathway does not definitively recommend any diagnostic testing. It says that a chest x-ray can be done if the diagnosis is uncertain, with the understanding that it may still not be helpful if it's viral, if it's early in the illness, or if the patient is dehydrated. So is there any evidence for why not to do diagnostic testing in the outpatient setting?
1: Yeah, so for, for most children who present in a classic way um, with you know, cough, Uh, maybe some difficulty breathing and and a focal chest Uh, x-ray, that clinical assessment has been shown to be um, a strong indicator of of, community-acquired pneumonia. However, in a case where you're uncertain, Um, as you had suggested, and there might be other things on the differential, um, it it is okay to get a chest Mm -hmm. Um, x-ray. We've actually found um, that actually before the pathway was started and after the pathway, only uh, between 10 and 15 percent of outpatient uh, children with pneumonia were getting chest x-rays, and that's actually pretty consistent with national data.
0: Okay, great. That's good to know. Um, So when I was training, the typical pathogens of a bacterial community-acquired pneumonia were always told, like, strep pneumonia, strep pneumonia, strep pneuma. Has anything changed? Is that what I should be thinking of, and what else might be a typical pathogen?
1: Um, The short answer is no, nothing's really changed. the strep pneumo is still really what we're going after, and, and, and as you know, um, viral pathogens really are the most common cause of pneumonia, particularly in kids, young children under age five. But if you're thinking about bacterial pneumonia, um, and, and this is this is the, the setting that we're, we're considering, um, strep pneumo should be number one. You know. The things probably have changed a bit since um, over time, um, the pneumococcal vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, conjugate vaccine has come in and first it was seven valent, then 10 valent, valent now 13 valent. Mm-hmm. So it has been shown that the incidence of strep pneumonia has decreased, but but there haven't been any reports to suggest that there's another pathogen that has taken over. So right now we really still target in otherwise healthy kids, uh, pneumococcus. Great. Yeah,
0: it's good to hear that the vaccine is working though. Yeah,
1: yeah, no. <laughs> (laughs) It's doing great. And and overall, what it seems to be doing is really decreasing the incidence of pneumonia and keeping kids out of the hospital. Um, If there is some type of shift in, in organisms, um, we will react to that but we haven't seen that yet uh, in terms of the, when it is bacterial it's typically pneumococcus
0: great so since we're talking about pneumococcus the first-line outpatient treatment for community-acquired pneumonia is amoxicillin but what if my patient is allergic to amoxicillin
1: that's a good question and I think the first thing I would say in any case with, with an allergy is just just confirm that it truly is a drug allergy the, the, when, when people have looked at this um, and done allergy testing the vast majority of what we record as um, drug allergies particularly lactam allergies are not true allergies. They're, they're rashes, maybe sort of common nonspecific mac, mac, maculopapular rashes that might happen, you know, five, seven, ten days into therapy, um, and that, and that's not a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Um, however, if you do confirm um, either clinically or from allergy testing that one of your patients has a uh, something consistent with a type 1 hypersensitivity uh, reaction, we actually recommend um, either clindamycin um, or levofloxacin if you're thinking about typical pneumonia now when i say typical pneumonia as you as you alluded to before there's never there's not a perfect you know clinical scenario to to tell you that it's typical pneumonia but the more abrupt onset of fever difficulty breathing focal chest x-ray findings you're thinking pneumococcus um right now um, it, the the surveillance data suggests that clindamycin covers about ninety percent of pneumococcus, um, and and then levofloxacin if you did have to go there. Um, covers more than 95%. Sometimes people will pick um, a macrolide like azithromycin, mm-hmm. and one of the challenges with azithromycin, although it's, it's, it's excellent for atypical pathogens, there is about 20 to 40% of, azith- of, of, of um, macrolides, typically mycoplasma pneumonia, are actually resistant um, to azithromycin. So that's why we haven't chosen azithromycin as our first, our sort of go-to um, second-line agent for allergic patients. Mm-hmm.
0: Good to know. And I know levofloxacin. And you have to refresh my coverage memory, but I know it covers Legionella, which you see in adults. We don't really yeah. see that much in kids. Does it cover? Does the levofloxacin cover mycoplasma? Would I be getting yeah. like both? the strep pneumo and potentially mycoplasma?
1: Yeah. It's sort of like the good and the bad of quinolone. So levofloxin, which is considered a respiratory fluoroquinolone, has outstanding pneumococcal coverage. It also covers um, your atypical pathogens, including mycoplasma pneumonia. Mm-hmm. It covers legionella, which, as you said, is probably not very common in, in kids, certainly in, probably not in community-acquired pneumonia, but it does cover that. It also covers the other respiratory gram-negatives that probably aren't as common but every once in a while can come up such as Moraxella or mm-hmm. Haemophilus influenza mm-hmm. um, so it's sort of one-stop shopping mm-hmm. and I say that's a good that, that, mm-hmm. the downside is because of that and because it's orally bioavailable they're, they're used very very frequently and so mm-hmm. um, you know we, we have seen some resistance but right now for pneumococcus it's, it's good. The reason we, we don't list it first um, is because it, it is so broad in spectrum, and it's also sometimes sometimes hard to find in yeah. liquid form. Um, so it's really a practical issue, and so you, you have to call ahead to your pharmacy if you do need to do, uh, do that to make sure that they actually um, make, uh, make that formulation.
0: Mm-hmm. And you kind of touched on this already, but a lot of times in primary care what we see is that a patient has recently been on amoxicillin for either their recent strep or otitis that yeah. maybe came right before, their pneumonia presentation, so at that point, should I then put them on Clinda or is it okay within the past month if they were treated for streptitis to reuse my amoxicillin.
1: Yeah, it's a good question and there's not great data about this, but the rule of thumb that we use and the it's we, we're following at the AAP says is that if it's been it's if it's within 4 weeks, it's reasonable to, to consider another medication. So, um, in that case, clindamycin is also a nice choice because it's a different mechanism of resistance and still has pretty good coverage. Um, so something like clindamycin or levofloxacin. I think Unlike with um, with something like a titus media, where you would go from amoxicillin to then amoxiclav or augmentin because you're uh, for treatment failure because you're worried about more XLO or H flu coming up, mm-hmm. if you're thinking about resistance, going from amoxicillin to amoxiclav or augmentin really won't help you because it's probably still potentially you know, pneumococcus and mm-hmm. in that case you've got the same mechanism mm-hmm. mechanism of right. resistance, which is why we think about clindamycin or levofox. So.
0: Great, that's really helpful. Thank you. You mentioned treatment failure. So often we see a patient who is diagnosed with pneumonia either by the the ED or one of our outpatient colleagues, and then they're told to follow up with us in something like two days, and then we mm-hmm. see them and they're still symptomatic. So, at what point should we consider it a treatment failure yeah. versus just the natural history of pneumonia, which we know is difficult to treat and recover from?
1: It's a great question and one that we struggle with. I think yeah, I think a couple things. First, you know, even on the inpatient setting, you know, we will give 48 to 72 hours. Um, before we kind of throw in the towel and say this is this is treatment failure. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if a patient is getting worse um, and, and getting sicker, um, you know, that timeline might be shorter, but of course at that point you probably would send the patient to the hospital. Mm-hmm. I think after, 48 to 72 hours of no improvement, and knowing that they're actually taking their medication, say amoxicillin, knowing that it's dosed appropriately, it's between 80 and 100 milligrams per kilogram, you know, to make sure we're looking at resist, uh, covering resistant pneumococcus. At that point, it's probably fair to switch to another, another uh, medication. But always knowing that viral infections are, are the most common cause and, and really very difficult to distinguish clinically, even sometimes with chest radiography, it's difficult to tell viral pneumonia from uh, bacterial pneumonia so you know cer- certainly in a patient who has focal um, lung findings by exam and maybe let's say you even got a chest x-ray and you saw something focal and they were stuck after 48 to 72 hours on t- taking their amoxicillin at the right dose at that point it's worth it's worth um, you know making a switch but you also might at that point you know whether they they've gone to the ED or come back to you you could also consider at that point maybe doing some type of testing um, for a virus or for mycoplasma, you know, we don't recommend that upfront mm-hmm. because you know that the tests are expensive and, and usually kids respond. But but just another consideration to think about viruses as a, as a cause because sometimes that can take a little longer.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And we've been dancing around mycoplasma a little bit, so <laughs> let's dig into that. Um, yeah. You mentioned about not testing for it upfront, but maybe later on when the diagnosis is more tricky. So determining whether or not the patient's symptoms from the get go may be attributable to an atypical pneumonia like mycoplasma can be really difficult I think and what clinical signs would push you towards considering an atypical pneumonia versus the strep pneumonia
1: it's a great question and one that we haven't answered well in fact I was in a meeting yesterday trying to uh, devise a a clinical trial to to get at this question uh, because it just hasn't been answered in kids but Mm -hmm. but what what the the current epidemiology data suggests is that mycoplasma there are sort of two general things we look at. One, it's thought to be less common in kids under age five, certainly not impossible, mm-hmm. but more common in school-aged children and adolescents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and so that's one piece. And then the second piece is that the clinical syndrome tends to be a little bit more insidious. And so we think about onset over maybe five to seven days even of, of low-grade fever, usually lower-grade fevers, although it can cause a, a legit high fever. Mm-hmm. Um, starting sometimes with cough alone, um, malaise, headache, sort of fatigue. Now again, those are non-specific symptoms, um, but we think about that picture a little bit more uh, um, than with um, maybe sort of just a runny nose, uh, you know URI that all of a sudden abruptly turns into a high fever and difficulty breathing, which is more consistent with um, a more typical bacterial pneumonia that might be caused by pneumococcus. So that's that's kind of the story. You think about age. You think about that that uh, sort of constellation of signs and symptoms and um and that would make you think a little bit more about that you know on the physical exam the the findings might be a little bit more diffuse you can t- sometimes hear um crackle somewhat diffusely uh, but again none of these are perfect and our, and our testing un- for mycoplasma isn't great unfortunately you know you can't really grow it in culture we have a pcr but it's not you know you're not going to get the result for a day or two and even the even the mycoplasma pcr is not perfectly sensitive so mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned thinking about mycoplasma in the school-age child. Is that because for some reason school-age children are more susceptible to that bacteria or is it something about the exposure of being in school? So if you have a school-age sibling and you're... Two. are you more yeah. at risk for mycoplasma, or is it something yeah. about the biology?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's it, it's a it's a great question. I think it's more the latter. So um, the the transmission of mycoplasma in close contact with children um, tends to uh, tends to be tends to account for that. You know, pneumococcus is something that can colonization with pneumococcus can spread from from child to child, but it's not. Quite as um, contagious as as mycoplasma, so that's I think that's the driving force. But the data, you know, much as um, the treatment data and the, the clinical presentation data aren't clear, um, to my knowledge, you know, those data aren't aren't as clear.
0: Okay, all right. So we'll keep thinking about it in our school age children, but not necessarily rule it out in anyone who's not in that age group yeah
1: it's possible the number the the most recent numbers i've looked at show that it's much more common but still happens occasionally in the younger kids
0: you touched on contagion so parents often ask about whether or not the pneumonia that we diagnose their child with is contagious for the other family members and so is it and when can that child go back to school
1: yeah it's a good question so you know, pneumococcus typically isn't something that's going to spread readily from, from person to person, um, however, viral pathogens do spread pretty easily and oftentimes we treat for bacterial pneumonia and even though it, it might just as often be a virus, so those, vi- you know, if it is a virus, those certainly are um, contagious, but most of those viral, path- viral pathogens actually present as upper respiratory tract infections. Um, in terms of going back to school, if we're here, we're worried about bacterial pneumonia. Um, once you've been on treatment for 24 hours, you really shouldn't be contagious anymore. Um, I don't think there are great epidemiologic data. That's what we tip, we, we use for most bacterial pathogens. And I think my, my, my guess is that just the, by the time the kid is feeling better, you know, usually when you have pneumonia you're a little bit beat up, it mm-hmm. takes a day or two, by that time it should be fine. Okay. I can't, again, can't guarantee that whatever virus they might have either as the inciting, um, you know, oftentimes you get a virus and then you get back on top of it or as right. the sole pathogen could still be um, spread, but honestly if we kept every kid home from school with a virus nobody would be in school. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly.
0: So diagnosing pneumonia during an asthma flare can be tricky. And as you mentioned, we're kind of in that season now too. So an asthmatic will often have tachypnea, and increased work of breathing, sometimes crackles or fever during a flare. Um, and determining whether or not those symptoms in their asthma flare are attributable to a virus plus asthma versus pneumonia plus asthma can be really hard, just like determining whether it's a virus or pneumonia alone but we often rely on a low pulse ox as one of the things that pushes us a little bit more towards thinking something is a pneumonia so when we are treating an asthmatic and they're taking out butyrol we know they can have some vq mismatching and sometimes their pulse ox is low too so any suggestions for how to approach ruling out pneumonia during an asthma flare
1: yeah i mean i'm going to give you another this is hard answer (laughs) Um, this is this is really tough and um you know i think I think everything that you said is true. you know what if you but but I think if you look at a rather, you know, abrupt onset of symptoms with a fever, and if you find focal oscillatory findings, that can be a clue. I think, you know, when, when these kids come into the office, you're typically going to give them a trial of bronchodilators. Mm-hmm. You know, if they don't respond to the trial of bronchodilators, um, that can be another clue. And maybe this is a patient uh, where you get a, a, chest X- a chest x-ray if you're really on the fence. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, as you know, patients with, with um, asthma can often have, particularly the right middle lobe, um, can have some atelectasis. And it's hard, mm-hmm. but but I think. These are just, you know, the, I don't think there's a magic bullet here, putting all those different pieces together, and, um, and, and talking to the family and the patient if they're old enough to see if this feels like one of their typical asthma flares mm-hmm. or if this feels different in, in some way. And sometimes there can be kind of non-specific signs that push you one way or another. But we don't have a great answer for this. And I, just as a side note, you know, we are currently starting a trial, um, a multi-center trial. One is in the, uh, in, the, in the CHOP care network where we're looking, trying to compare five days versus ten days for community acquired pneumonia and uh, in our site but across all the other sites one of the sticking points is um, whether we include patients who who are who have a history of asthma or have received bronchodilators and so I'm I'm just bringing that up to say that everybody's struggling with this one and I think we probably will you know in in some cases kids with asthma are probably getting antibiotics um, maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit more often than they need to but it's really just reflecting that it's a tough it's a tough diagnosis to distinguish Mm
0: -hmm. I think it's really helpful at the beginning you said that the pulse reading that you're using in the pathway is 90% because a lot of times I'm seeing with asthmatics like you know 91 to 95 and I'm like "Mm, it's a little lower than it should be but it's not from what you're telling me as low as maybe I would expect if they truly had an pneumonia that maybe it'd be a little bit lower so that's actually reassuring I think
1: yeah and I think that that number might be helpful Um, you know the data um, aren't perfect but at the same time um, you know and people and some people get nervous with a 90 number people have always thought about 92 um, but yeah that might be another piece and it, you know, certainly if you can get that you know with bronchodilator therapy in the office if you can bump that up a little bit that might make you feel a little bit better um, that it's um, that it's more a reactive airway issue than it is a bacterial infection and um, yeah but, but it's tough
0: yeah so the study you mentioned is is that the Scout Cap study? And yes. Who are you recruiting? Will that reach the whole care network? Or are you picking certain sites to recruit patients? Yeah,
1: we've actually opened it up to the entire um, care network for the, those um, sites that are interested. in, most sites were interested. Um, there's actually not much to do. This the sites actually we just want to make them aware because it's um, it's what we call sort of a real world study. So we are not um making the diagnosis as study investigators and enrolling on day one what we do um is we are any patients who receive a beta-lactam so it's either amoxicillin augmentin or ceftonir, most in our practice get amoxicillin Mm -hmm. because they're you know so um good at following the ap guidance Um, if they receive that treatment um, we do some screening um, through um, an epic window that we have and if they're qualified so you have to be at least six months of age um, you and under um, you we were not looking at adolescents under age six um, you can't have complex chronic conditions severe asthma if you do qualify and we've gotten permission from the sites we contact the families directly and on day five we would actually enroll them and they would either get day six through 10 will either be placebo or continuation of their same drug mm-hmm. so it's kind of a nice study it's real world we're relying on the diagnosis of the practitioners so they get a diagnosis of pneumonia and receive one of those antibiotics that that is targeted in our study. Um, And we we say that's pneumonia diagnosis instead of bringing them in and doing x-rays and Mm -hmm. doing things in a non-real world clinical trial setting. And then we're gonna see if five versus 10 days is any different. Our hypothesis, based on some previous data, much in developing countries, But some in developed countries suggest that you don't need more than five days of of therapy, but we're going to do this in in five different sites across the United States um, to see. And I think that will be a a good thing if there's no difference because we can reduce the amount of antibiotic days, the cost, and some of the side effects that go along with prolonged antibiotics.
0: That'd be great. Um, so we look forward to seeing some of our patients probably enrolled. Yeah, that.
1: we've enrolled two already. We, okay, just, we just started last week, so <laughs> we're, our goal at, at CHOP is to get 100 patients, and I think in two seasons we'll do that pretty easily. Yeah, great.
0: So if people are looking for more information on community-acquired pneumonia or the pathway, where can they find it?
1: Uh, yeah, so on the CHOP.edu website. It, this is not an intranet, it's an extranet mm-hmm. website, so it's uh, Uh, available to anyone. So if you just um, even Google search CHOP Clinical Pathways, um, there's a nice search um, uh, box right there where you can scroll down and look at any of the pathways. Scroll down to pneumonia. Um, There's a community-acquired pneumonia pathway and you click on it. It's fairly fairly, um, user-friendly in terms of clicking through and talking about assessment and um, medications and what you should expect. And there are some references, um, including the 2011 AAP and then Infectious Disease Society of America guideline um, and, and um, certainly if, if anybody we really encourage feedback we've gotten great feedback on, on the pathway since it's been launched we've updated it actually twice just recently a couple weeks ago the newest update went live um, but we really welcome feedback because uh, the frontline providers who are using this are really the best source of information so there's contact information my, uh, my name and, and contact information on that site and please please let me know how, how you think it, it works
0: Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for keeping us honest with our antibiotics and giving the best and safest care to our patients, especially with pneumonia in particular. So thanks for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.